Hello, this is Bittersweet Ramblings. It's a podcast looking at human interaction as viewed through some sort of audio, visual, or audiovisual art form. That could be a short story, a book, a film, a music video, TV show. So today I'm going to be taking a look at a short film slash music video that's called Rumble Seat. Let's go ahead and get started. So I have an extreme fondness for animated movies and TV shows. It's a combination of the high school art club kid in me and all of the cartoons I watched as a small child. We watched a lot of Looney Tunes, so when you had cartoons that were directed by, you know, people like Chuck Jones, they weren't just meant for kids, there was an art to them, there was an art form. They do continue that to this day, but the blocking of them was really just impressive. So this particular video, it hits all of the animated buttons for me. It's sort of my happy place. It's It's got the old West Saloon type things. It's, it's got the old drive-in movie and the cars and, and then it's got the stars and the heavens and all of that. So all of these things really appeal to me personally. So this is why Rumble Seed is one of my favorite little short films. I've actually included a link to the video in the notes. It's like six minutes if you want to watch it. So it's the story of a car accident and the after effects of that accident for the drivers and for the passengers. So a quick spoiler alert, they do not survive the accident. And not only do they not survive, but they are so intertwined by that accident that even after that accident, they are linked together. When I was watching Rumble Seat, I was struck by how the protagonist wanted to run away from the others involved in the accident. But really, he was more tied to them than he was to the rest of the world he found himself in. Every part of that world was strange and different. And they were the ones who kept coming back for him when he was, you know, lost. Although, you know, since the only mourner at his funeral seems to be his girlfriend, you kind of wonder if he was a bit of a dick who no one wanted to hang out with and those other guys just kind of felt sorry for him. And usually a few people will stick around for your funeral, even if it is just out of obligation, but maybe he was one of those guys who was just like a little bit into his car. Like really too much into his car. And accidents are weird especially motor accidents, and the fact that the others involved are dealing with a specific time, place, and incident that didn't happen to anyone else. It was a shared experience, and it was viewed, you know, it can be viewed from multiple perspectives, but they have an understanding of that accident and a feeling for that accident that no one else is going to have. They understand better than anyone else what happened there and then. And they're going to be changed by that situation in what may be a large or a small way. 
the people involved are people who wouldn't necessarily interact in any way if they wouldn't have been involved in that accident. I was involved in a car accident a few years ago. I was rear-ended by a woman who was, and I quote, waiting for the ABS to kick in because the automatic brake system somehow has to kick in and isn't automatically working all of the time. Not that I remember that phrase with like a deeply embedded bitterness. Not at all. Didn't cost me thousands of dollars over several years. No, not at all. So my car was hit hard enough to slam it into the car in front of me. And eventually the insurance company did declare it as totaled. The cop who came took probably 20 to 30 minutes to get there. And by the time he had gotten there, we'd already moved our cars to a parking lot. We'd all nearly been hit about two to three times by passing traffic and our cars had nearly been sideswiped. And we decided to stop playing the human versions of Frogger. And yet, when the cop got there, he was really pissed that we had moved. Like, sorry, we didn't feel like tempting the Grim Reaper any more than we already had. We didn't want the Reaper to go final destination on our asses. That, that whole will-to-live thing can be tough to overcome. Sorry about your paperwork. But the problem was that in that 20 to 30 minutes, we all had time to bond. By the time that that officer was there, I was absolutely leaving out a few of the things that had happened. Now, had he asked, I would have told him. But I wasn't offering information like I would have, say, even 15 minutes before that. And he wasn't going to know exactly what questions would trigger me to volunteer information. It's not like I didn't try to make it accurate. I tried to make it accurate. I even managed to leave out my view that it was caused by gremlins, so I was on best behavior. Also, he really didn't look like he'd be up for the joke. He was kind of stiff. And I would like to give a special kudos to automakers, because I was really lucky I wasn't injured. Because I saw her coming in the rearview mirror and I knew she was going to hit me, and that car took the hit instead of me. And I really loved that car. Not the way that the guys in the rumble seat video love their cars. Like, I'm not going to take it to an afterlife or anything like that. It's a car. It does its job. And, and I don't love it the way that that guy in that episode of My Strange Addiction loves his car. Like, I never felt the need to make out with the bumper or to violate a car's muffler. But, you know, to each his own. I couldn't help but wonder how much do the stories of people involved in accidents change if they know there is not someone around to contradict their version of events? And what factors would play into a person starting to tilt that story? Like the lady who hit me, this wasn't her only recent accident. She'd had one a month or two earlier. She looked super frazzled, her husband looked pissed, and he seemed like a real peach. A greasy, jerky peach who yanked her kid from her arms, stormed off to his car, and sped off. So she's got a kid, she's got an angry husband, and she's got a recent accident hanging over her head. Like, how accurate does she really want to be when she tells this story? If she's able to tilt it in her favor, even a little bit, well, how much will that ease the consequences for her? Although she told the cop that I caused the accident, I'm going to be fucking pissed because 
because I didn't. It wasn't my fault. I'm a perfect driver. A perfect driver who never gets ragey at people who insist on going 10 miles below the speed limit in the fast lane. So what happens then if you have a responsibility to tell the exact truth about what happened? At a job I had in high school, one of my co-workers was a lady whose relative had been killed by a drunk driver. The drunk driver was a high school kid who didn't have anything better to do, so he was out drinking. In the car that he hit, there were two brothers and their nephew, and one of the brothers was killed on impact. This brother was absolutely adored by his nephew. He was in total favorite uncle territory, and he was killed in front of the nephew. But the nephew couldn't remember it because he had a head injury and was having memory issues. He couldn't remember the accident at all. So every day his family had to tell him what happened and deal with him trying to process that and then forgetting it and then the next day having to go through it again. So when the drunk driver appeared in front of the judge and the judge asked the family what they wanted, the family asked for one thing. Every day, that driver had to go to the hospital. And every day, he had to explain to the nephew what had happened to his uncle. Because the family couldn't keep doing it. It just broke them down. So per the judge, that driver, that high school kid who had gotten drunk, had to go to the hospital every day for weeks. And he had to explain every day to that kid what had happened to his uncle. And he had to explain his role in it. And he had to be there while the kid sobbed and mourned his uncle. And that driver continually had hope that maybe the next day the kid's brain would be healed enough to remember. Because if not, he would have to relive it and he would have to remember it. And he would have to accurately tell that story to that kid. Because the family wanted to make sure that the driver remembered and understood the impact of what he did. And because it was part of the court judgment, he had to retell the story accurately. Where the responsibility to be accurate and to continually tell that story correctly had been forced upon someone. He had a court judgment hanging over his head and he had to be accurate. And when I was thinking about that, I was re remembering some things that I'd read about the milligram experiment. That was that experiment that took place in the 60s where there was a quote-unquote teacher who was supposed to deliver electronic shocks every time the student gave a wrong answer. And they kept increasing the amount of the shocks, except there wasn't really anyone there and it was really just torturing people. And it was because they wanted to see how people would respond to authority figures, i.e. guys in lab coats. The milligram experiment is framed often as just people listening to authority figures. It wasn't just that they were listening to the orders of the people in lab coats, though. The people who were taking part of that experiment were actually putting the responsibility onto the others who had those lab coats. It wasn't just that they were following the orders of the people in the lab coats, but that they were taking that responsibility away from themselves and they were putting it on those people in the lab coats. And they were saying, hey, this is just what I was paid to do. Also, the experiment took place in the 60s, so 
Why stop the experiment or give the people the understanding that they can leave the experiment? It sounds like the guy they had in the lab coat got pretty enthusiastic about making people feel they had no way out. I've seen this at several places where I work, actually. Someone has been asked to do something they don't agree with. They don't think it's right. They don't think it's the correct thing to do. But they've got someone leaning on them to do it. So they will go to their manager and they will ask if they need to do this or not. And then they basically put that responsibility on to the manager. And one of the things I found was trying to train people to take on that responsibility is difficult when they've had years of people telling them exactly what to do. Or if they get yelled at a lot or, and are constantly under stress. They, they get tired of having blame constantly pressed onto them. So they are more likely to look for someone else to be held accountable because a lot of times they're the ones who don't get the benefit of when things go right. They're just expected to take the blame when things go wrong. They've had too many years of a manager or coworker around them who was not able to accept the responsibility for the problem so it wanted the credit when they were all fixed. People like that never really learn responsibility. They want the glory, but they don't want the work or the risk. That's an inherent part of it. Which is a problem because if you don't learn, then you repeat yourself and eventually, if not immediately, someone gets hurt. This is why it's important to recognize when someone's helped you, who did the work, and who could really use the boost. You need to look for the need and you need to fill it. Not to the point where you're shorting yourself, but enough to give someone who needs the credit a boost. And then if there isn't a need anywhere else, go ahead and take the credit. Because if there is someone who put in a ton of work and they need the boost, you give it to them. I mean, unless that person is someone who uses a turn lane to pass in traffic, and then all bets are off, just take the credit for them for sucking as drivers. Which I think all the drivers in the video did. I think they were the type who would, you know, take the turn lane to pass. They were racing around in the middle of the night in their hot rods in what appeared to be a quiet neighborhood. I'm really starting to see why there were not many mourners at the funeral for Hot Rod. One quote that did strike me from the video was the line, we all thought we'd be something we'd all thought we'd be someone. And everyone wonders what we would be. What's your impact on the world and how do you want to be remembered? Or will you be remembered? Are you going to be remembered as a person who built a castle out of, you know, old Girl Scout cookie boxes? and then cried when they got wet and disintegrated? Or are you gonna be remembered as someone from that family that always sat in the front row at church because they're a little bit more holy than everyone else? Or are you gonna be remembered as that person who didn't get around to scooping the snow from their sidewalk? Because that one neighbor always wants to come over and chat, even though you are clearly wearing headphones. It's fine, it'll melt on its own, eventually. So what happens when you die? Like, do you go to an old West-style ghost town and start living out Deadwood or Westworld-style? Which sounds awful, by the way. Can you imagine where all that dust ends up? It ends up in places where it shouldn't be. That's where the dust ends up. When consciousness slips away and there's just a shell left that's quickly deteriorating, what if anything happens? Like, how long do you try to hold on to that shell? My mom and sister are both nurses, and I used to work in a nursing home. So 
you start to see people who are ready to go. They are suffering and they are ready. But when their families are not and don't understand that they're ready, it's really heartbreaking. Because there are a ton of treatments that can keep them alive. But that doesn't mean that they're not suffering. A lot of times they're in pain until they heal or they die. And if something affects them mentally, they're just, they're not the same. You really need to understand when they are ready and respect that. You need to understand that you're not letting go of the memories. You're not letting go of what they gave to you, good or bad. They are deep in the tapestry of your genes. They are deep in the tapestry of your makeup. They are just going back to be part of the earth. We don't exist for that long. I mean, don't pull the plug on grandpa after five minutes or anything. It doesn't matter if when you were nine and you were wearing an awesome sequin rainbow shirt, he told you that you look like a trout. You're still going to feel guilty. Probably. Personally, I don't think there's an afterlife. I think that when you die, you die. So what you do here is really important. And all that little shit and all that big stuff that you do, that all matters. If your interactions with others is just basically a constant battle where you're just creating a path of destruction so that you can feel stronger or better, what kind of a memory or what kind of a history are you really going to leave? Just be decent to others because we're all connected. There's research out there to prove that people, that we, that our bodies are made up of stardust. Like actual stardust. And there's a part of everyone that may have been around for all of existence. And that part of us is going to continue on. It's going to be in some other form, but doesn't disintegrate. It just changes. And that's beautiful. For a second, I was thinking about ending the episode there, but it was starting to sound like a very special episode on a sitcom or an after-school special or a fucking eulogy. So I'm going to keep going on for a bit. I'm just going to say that when I had that accident, I'm really, really happy that there wasn't any major damage or a eulogy for me. It was a pretty nasty car wreck. And cars give you an amazing sense of freedom and the ability to go where you want to. You know, as long as you have a working car and cash for gas. Automobile makers have done some amazing things to make vehicles safer, more efficient, and beautiful. But contrary to what that guy on My Strange Addiction thinks, don't try to bang your car. Like... I don't care how much of a dry spell you've had, or how special your relationship with your car is, or how enticing the muffler looks. You're going to be making out with your car, or getting intimate with it in some way in the parking lot, and someone's going to call the cops, and that's going to attract reporters, and there's going to be news clips everywhere, and... <laughs> I've changed my mind. You know what? If you love your car intimately, show it. Take it to work with you. Give it a good morning kiss. The whole works. Who, who am I to stand in the way of true love? Love your car. Show it. Maybe have a friend post it on YouTube or something. Just, you know, a little bit of joy for everybody. So, 
that's it for this episode. The next episode I'm planning on talking about the movie Paranorman. Have a good night.